G'day, it's Phil here. Last time on the Game Changers special series, or series 11, where we talked about leadership, talking with Bryony Scott, we really delved into the complexity of leadership and the character of the leader and the way in which leaders can help shape and form the work of teachers within their school. I'm really, really intrigued about how we shape and form the character of leaders as well too. And I'm excited to talk more about this with Brian, and I can't wait to dig into it further, so let's go. Before I start my conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Adriano, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Phil. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Ballot Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash coaching. Let's go. Hello, Bryony. Hello. Thank you very much for coming back for a third and final conversation. I want, if I can, to talk a little bit further about the journey of you and how you found your voice. When we talked in the first conversation we had, you said right at the beginning that you were inspired by creating the conditions under which young people, and in your case, girls, because you run a girls' school, can find their voice and find the voice that they're going to need in the world at large. You are a person who has a very distinctive voice in Australian education and a very constructive voice, at times strident and uncompromising and always thoughtful and reflective. When did you develop the confidence to start expressing that voice on a scale that went beyond those immediately around you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I actually don't completely know. Part of it is the serendipity. I mean, I got involved on Twitter, on social media quite early on, and so really enjoyed listening and reading about different perspectives from my own and challenging me and the way I was thinking. And so I will, I'm not scared of social media. I've been involved in it for a long time. It can go ugly, but I also really enjoy being able to connect with people that I wouldn't normally connect with. So I suspect that that, in one sense, was the forum by which it all began. The second thing that we ended up doing a number of years ago was recognising that there are a lot of young women in educational leadership or aspiring for leadership who felt reluctant to put their hands up or were not confident enough to be able to go, yes, I'm going to apply for a job. And so we started this thing called the Renaissance Women's Leadership Network, which was all around creating a space where educational leaders from any sector, any allied educational groups, so TAFE or universities or NESA or whatever, could come together and we would just talk about leadership for women. And so that resonated in a way that I had not predicted. And I mean, we just loved it. We had so much fun and we'd get guest speakers in and it was didn't cost anything. It was all around just getting people together and going, okay, it's time for you to step up. Stop waiting for the perfect situation. The world needs you. You know, we want you to step up and give leadership a go and, and we'll back you to the hilt. And that has grown over the years and it continues to resonate, particularly with young female leaders. So I think I had the opportunity of recognising that it was possible to sidestep the relentless sectoral tensions and language and conversation to get back to the profession. And it's not to say those aren't important conversations to have, but they 
typically dissolved into just ideological binary claptrap, you know, that was just noise that underdid the profession. And what I really wanted to do was to get to teachers and connect with them and, and particularly people who wanted to engage in leadership. So once I realised that you can, by and large, sidestep the noise and tap into that undercurrent of really good value people who just want to learn how to do this well within the context that we've all been set up, you know, put in, I, I wasn't as nervous about speaking up about things. And there are people who try and pick fights all the time and, and they're good people and I, I get it. I just don't want to fight. So I, I sidestep that. And I think that's what probably resonates with people. It, if everyone's tired of the fighting and we just want to work together to get solutions, you know. Yeah, I'd, look, I'd, I'd love to believe that. I think some people just keep carrying a pitchfork with them that. everywhere they go, you know, yeah. and yeah. and as you said, some of those people, they're great people. Some of them, they're not great people. Again, this, this idea that we're all neatly sorted into well, the people who think like me are all wonderful and the people who think don't think like me are all terrible. And, you know, yeah. that's I think that's that's not helpful and, and that's all part of the binary thinking that mm. I think doesn't actually help us. So I, I tend not to think that the problems of the world are solved by ideology because ideology is just a collection of ideas under a particular brand mm. that there's a claim for coherence, but whenever you put an ideology into practice, you see at best... A loose correlation between the original collection of ideas and, and what gets put into practice. I wanted to take you, if I can, to a moment around your voice, which I found particularly inspiring because I happen to be going through the same sort of thing at the same time, which was when you made a decision to share the journey that you were going on with your cancer. Yes. So if we can step through that for a few moments, I'd appreciate that greatly because less in terms of the details because that's not necessary I think but more in terms of that decision you made to share and to explain to people what you were going through so how'd you make that decision I couldn't make that decision you know it took me two years to share with anybody except my family and my closest friends that I've gone through that and yet there you were leading all of us yeah well Partly, I mean, I'd love to take the credit for that, but partly I didn't have a lot of choice. So in 2015, I was diagnosed with lung cancer and lung cancer is one of those diseases that carries an extraordinary stigma and an incredibly high death rate and is the most prevalent and most deadly cancer uh, that we have, but because of the stigma is never talked about it and it talked about. And so when I was diagnosed with lung cancer, and I had never been a smoker. So I was part of a growing body of people, younger people who are getting cancer, you know, for, for some other reason, which we haven't worked out yet because we don't have the money for the research. It meant that I had to have pretty full-on treatment. And as a principal, I had to step aside to engage in that treatment. There isn't, the expectation is that I would die. And I was very cognizant after having dealt with my, you know, obviously involved my family, first of all, but then that I ran this community that I adored and by and large, they loved me, you know, so there was a, there was a, in the sense that we, we got on very well and I couldn't just disappear. And if I was going to die, I, 
I needed the parents. I couldn't get to the kids. I needed the parents to step up and and to be me for their children. I needed them to be able to walk alongside them and to explain what was going on. So I received the diagnosis and then and treatment kind of happened straight away. So I, I wrote this letter to the families that said, and I knew the nanosecond that they found out what cancer I had, it would be, they would Google and they would determine that, you know, it was single digit survival. So I, I knew that that was going to be a challenge. So I wrote to the parents and I talked about the stars and the constellations and that things happen to us in life and they're like the stars that we have no control over, that they're just the events. But the constellations are the stories that we tell ourselves about those stars and that constellation is up to us and that I had hope and that I wanted them to have hope. And and I knew like how you look after corporate grief was something I had never done before, but I just needed it. And the community were magnificent. And the thing about principles is that there is, I mean, you just look at the recent death of Murray, you know, the impact is profound and it's significant and it's not just on the students, it's on the teachers, it's also on their families and the communities they're connected to. And so I I knew that I couldn't do it, but I needed the parents to do it and they were magnificent with it. We then went to the movies to see an old Meryl Streep movie (laughs) at the local cinema and then came back out and it had been picked up and gone around the world. So my brother found out about it in America via the media. He had friends in Germany and, and England who'd read about it. So, And that was partly because being a principal and it was partly because I was married to Mark and Mark was the chair of the um, managing director of the ABC at the time, which was a big role as well. So the combination of that made it a, a newsworthy story. It, it wasn't really something I had a lot of control over, but I did know that I had to get to the parents. I just needed to give them something that they could use to talk it through with their kids, particularly if I was going to die, which would have been pretty tough on them all. Are you still comfortable with that being part of your story? Yeah, I, I don't have a choice. Like, and, and it's one of those things I think as a principle that I go, could I have just walked away and not said anything? No. I mean, these are my kids, right? Like these are my families. These are, this is my community. I'm I'm not... They absolutely, and, and I knew, well, I didn't know a lot, but I, I did know that if I could help them create a narrative that made sense for their children, that if I died, they would be able to talk that through with them. That's life, right? Like I, I wish it hadn't have happened, but things do happen in their lives that we have no control over that we don't want. We have parents who die. We have children who die. We have kids who suicide. We have all these things that are like stars. And this was one of those spaces where I couldn't get to these kids to help them navigate their way through it, but their parents could and did brilliantly. I mean, what do I regret? I, I wish I didn't have cancer, but having had it, I don't regret sending the letter that allowed all of us to be on the same page. The alternative is that they would have Googled and that would have, I mean, they'll have Googled anyway. <laughs> um, but but that sense of like, no, no, there is a message here and this is the narrative and this is how we're going, that was, I don't regret that. So this capacity to construct a narrative in the lives of families and students, this is very different 
react again to the world of education when we went into it. You know, this sort of stuff happens. It's part of daily life. You know, I can't remember how many funerals of students and close members of families that I went to. I don't know. I couldn't tell you how many eulogies I've given over my time. I can tell you the day that I made the decision that that was the last eulogy that I was going to get because I'd done enough of that in my life. You know, it's a little bit like the last time I had to suspend or expel a student. I just said, walk into the deputy's office. No, I'm done. I don't don't want to do that again. And that's all right. People get to make that decision in and around it. But one of the things that we've had to do is to learn how to, and you mentioned Brene Brown in our previous conversation. I think she's such, I don't like how she writes, but I love what she writes about. And she's such an influential thinker in terms of how we think about leadership because whereas previously, I think a previous generation of leaders in education would have thought that their job was to hold the world at bay and to keep everything contained. We just don't do that now, do we? But what we do instead is we construct a narrative that others can weave their storylines into so that they can make sense of the world and what's going on in and around that. Um, If I can, I want to take you to Mark because you have an extraordinary family and, you know, I'm interested in how two extraordinary leaders support each other's leadership. And for those who don't know, Mark Scott started as a teacher, really significant figure in, in public life in New South Wales and Australia, managing director of the ABC, director of the Department of Education in New South Wales and now vice chancellor of the University of Sydney. Classic underachiever, clearly. And then there's you as well too. And so how does it work with two leaders and the support they give to each other for their leadership? I'm curious. I keep him grounded because I'm like, yeah, on the real world, Sunshine, this is what's really going on. Exactly. Um, The bins still need to be taken out every week, you know. (laughs) Exactly. You know what? We've been married a long time and we are dear friends. And so we we have three beautiful young women who are all kind of independent and living their own lives now but we remain incredibly close. And I think in the early years, we tagged a lot. So I did stay at home raising kids for a bit. He had a job at one point when we were living in the States that was, you know, pretty pedestrian for him, but it allowed me to go off and do some more study and do some extra things as well. And so we tagged in those early years a lot. And then we both just kind of threw ourselves into our roles. I'm I'm not quite sure... I don't know. I don't know how we've done it. We've done it with a lot of laughter. I respect him enormously and he respects me enormously. And I think that shows in the way that we honour each other's jobs and we honour the roles that we've got. He is well known on the public arena. He would argue that most principals are celebrities in their own world. You know, I mean, I can't go anywhere in, you know, within a 15 or anywhere actually without someone from one of the schools I've been at knowing me and and you know so they're, they're different jobs in that respect and look hey I've, I've had to move to Melbourne to, <laughs> to build a life for myself where I can I can live with at least a modicum of the quiet and energy that I crave because everywhere I, everywhere I go in the eastern suburbs or the, or the north shore or the inner west of Sydney there's yeah. oh g'day g'day Mr Cameron g'day Dr Cameron da, 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 da. you know it's yeah. like it's just a different world so I don't really know how we've done it. We've muddled along. We go through periods where we get snappy at each other. Or we go through periods where we're just delighted for each other. I mean, it's just a normal partnership, I guess, that's been going on now for a long time. You know, yeah, it's going well. 
few, dare I say it, war game leadership situations with each other. Is that a thing? You know, if you're wrestling with a problem, do you go and say, oh, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? And, or is it more out of support in the background? No, we we definitely talk around complexity, but the interesting thing is it's complexity around human nature. So not necessarily our roles, because I, I mean, I wouldn't presume to tell him how to do his job and he wouldn't presume to tell me how to do mine, but both of us come across different characters and different personalities or different situations that are complex. And that that is reassuring to be able to talk with somebody who goes, yeah, I understand complexity and and here's a, this is a situation that I've been in, and and being able to bounce that off is it's a lot more practical now. When we were raising kids at the same time, there wasn't a chance. Yeah, you know, it wasn't time for anything like that. But but now it, we would definitely talk and share. Bryony, you talked when we talked earlier about the impact that you can have on the lives of young people, and you know that's pretty much what you and Mark have had a relationship where you've been able to fractalise that on a personal and tactical and strategic and on a global level. It's 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 marvellous. You talked earlier in our series of conversations about the power of words and the power of words to create possibility. You've also talked about the tendency we have in our profession to approach things from a deficit mentality. I want to explore that a little bit more if we can because... Yeah. I think it's a real challenge for us as mm. teachers to understand that if we don't master the golem that's inside us, to use that terminology that, again, that you've used previously, that we're never going to get on top of the situation as a whole. I'm going to come back to you sort of with a part two that's a more structural problem, but this is the inside-out thing to start with. How can we help teachers to develop themselves from the inside out so that they can see possibility? And they can see hope, regardless of what the circumstances are, so that they can pass it on to their students in their words. Just prior to this, we were talking about how schools have changed in terms of no longer protecting our young people from the world, but helping them to navigate with the world and navigate the world that that they are a part of. And I, and I do think that's a really clear and demonstrable change in education over in recent years, where schools have now become the central community hub. Now, in regional and rural communities, they often were anyway. But with the demise, if you will, of the church, in the sense that it's no longer upfront and central in many people's lives, even people's lives, people of faith, perhaps don't go to church the way they used to. And with the fragmentation of family, so we're no longer living in extended family units, or expanded family units, we're living, you know, often with quite small family units, and which drives a lot of the anxiety that young families, young parents have. Schools are becoming increasingly the the sole community hub for families to connect with. And Martin Seligman, who's an American psychologist who did the whole started, I mean, he would say not positive psychology, but that's the phrase that gets attributed to him, but around the concept of learned helplessness and how you move away from a deficit in psychology to possible, you know, to, to more positive language. He talks about schools and and families needing what he calls a spiritual armchair, like something that they fall back into when things go wrong. And it, increasingly that is the school. And so for me, pretty much I'm in a K-12 school up to about five years after a kid leaves school. If they die, the families will come back to the school and we'll do the funerals and we'll guide them through that process. And that gives you some 
sense of just the extraordinary connection that takes place within this community and how much it matters. So when we talk about, well, what are changes and, and, and what do teachers do in terms of moving forward and how do you move out of this deficit mentality, I guess partly my voice has come back when I listen or come out when I listen to people bagging out this profession who think that they are trying to convince other people to give them more money because it's so bad and so dire that in fact it's having a counterintuitive effect that it actually is bringing everybody down and there are problems and there are challenges that we need to engage in but we need to be able to demonstrate the extraordinary strengths of this profession and the extraordinary work that teachers are already doing within their communities to create pathways for young people so that they can make an informed choice about what they want to do. And they're just not, well, you were born here, therefore here's your pathway, you know, goes off to the left. You were born here, your pathway goes off to the right. What we want is this like a river delta of options where young people created, we create opportunities for young people to make informed choices about what they want to do. So I don't understand. I mean, teachers are not going to survive in this world if they're not working on themselves, if they're not putting those boundaries in place, if they're not got their green tree frogs established, if they're not coming at it with some degree of humility and expectation that they will continue to grow and continue to learn. You just won't survive anymore. Equally, I go for those people who are grumpy with the profession. And this was this was actually the source of an article that I wrote, well, actually a speech, a talk that I gave that was transcribed and part of it was put into the financial review where there was not one negative response to it because I think so many people resonate with this, that we are told what to do by so many people who actually have diddly squat understanding of the complexity of the worlds that we're in. But we don't help ourselves when we sit and take pot shots at each other And when we bag out the profession and we talk about how awful it is and then we get upset that nobody wants to be in education because we're trying to convince these other people out there who don't even know what they're talking about that we need their money and we need their help. But by doing this, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're we're actually making it more complicated and more more worse, I can't even speak. Uh, We're making it harder for people to even want to join the profession. Whereas when you go, okay, we actually do need money. This is a real problem. Here's the evidence base around this, but we're not going to bag out the profession and and talk about why nobody wants to do it because it's all so bad because that actually has this counter effect to what they're saying. So the whole concept of deficit, this deficit mentality, I'm like, enough can we just stop if we need to fix bits of it let's fix bits of it let's not write off the whole profession because we're trying to make a point about how tough life is at the moment okay so let's talk about fixing a bit of it shall we because there's there's a a thing i haven't given you any warning about where i'm going to go because i'm just really curious as to (laughs) not have any answers yeah oh look you know maybe i don't have the answers around this too so i have i have a theory around this which is that i do think that what we require teachers to do as a normal standard now Mm. is greater than was expected of them when we constructed the industrial base around which teachers' workload was constructed. Yep. So as a person who wrote, I wrote the draft of the first draft of the standards for teachers in New South Wales, what, 17 years ago now, possibly 18 years ago. I'm not sure that having standards actually made much of a difference, really, but nonetheless, we could have that argument another time. But we now expect essentially every teacher to be excellent 
whereas previously we had an idea of what excellence might be, but really we were just kind of happy if they sort of achieved the minimum standard along the way. And let's be honest, there were a whole bunch in the profession who didn't even achieve the minimum standard and they just sort of bumbled along anyway. So we don't have that bottom part of our profession any longer. We've got, on the whole, earnest, very hardworking teachers who go in there and they do battle with giants every day. You know, they're in there fighting smaug, to use your, your, your Tolkien analogy from earlier in our conversations. I think it practically comes down to something like this. Your standard teacher of core subjects is on five subjects or five classes in their timetable, generally speaking. I think they probably need to be on four classes in their timetable. I think we probably need to reduce the amount of face-to-face teaching a teacher does. I think we probably need to pay them a little bit more, but not a huge amount more. We've just got to keep them at the sort of professional standard that they should be at. We also need to think about what we do when we've got people who essentially plateau out 10 years into their careers and we don't keep remunerating them for being expert classroom teachers, which I think is a real challenge because then we end up with people in leadership positions who really should just be teaching and they're not, you know, they don't want to do the leadership thing, but they have to because they've got mortgages and kids and things to pay themselves. So here we have a situation where we've got people who need to do more than they used to do in the past. We probably need to reduce their face-to-face teaching so that they can have the coaching, they can have the mentoring, they can have the collaboration, they can have the conversation, which doesn't fit in the school timetable in the school day right now for most teachers. So what we've instantly done, we've just increased the cost base of 75 to 80% of the cost base of education by 20%, 20 to 25%. How are we going to do this? Because I haven't, I haven't got an answer, but I reckon, I reckon if we get enough people talking about this practical reality of it, quite simply, if we want teachers to do stuff that's sustainable, we want leaders to do stuff that's sustainable, maybe we need to do the sort of thing that Parsi would talk about when he would say, actually, we need to do less face-to-face teaching mm. and we need to allow teachers to spend an hour, hour and a half every day just with each other, debriefing, talking about it, planning, conversing, and so on and so on. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with Parsi in this regard. I don't agree with everything he says, but the idea of reducing from face-to-face, I absolutely agree with. There is no doubt that what teachers are expected to do is greater than it has ever been. And one of the challenges is that we're expected to deliver specialist outcomes with a profession that is actually fundamentally generalist. So I can have specialist core inform- core curriculum knowledge. I can teach physics versus, you know, English. But the actual role itself is a generalist role. I'm expected to be a jack of all trades, master of none in that, in that sense, or master of one. And so we train our teachers now in mental health first aid. We teach them about, you know, um, just a myriad of other things other than their core curricula that they're teaching in their classroom. They all, in most schools everywhere, teachers are expected to run connect groups or wellbeing groups. They're expected to turn up to year meetings, to assemblies, to participate in those, to run extracurricular, to run co-curricular, to be engaged in community sport, music performances, debating competitions. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And this is partly because, once again, of society's expectations that schools will deliver it all or the means by which, you know, their, their child can get everything. 
So there is no doubt in my mind that we are requiring teachers to do more than has ever been required before at the same time as we judge them predominantly based on academic outcomes. Academic outcomes that for many schools actually bear little relevance to their reality. Outcomes that are focused on producing a score that will get them into university when many of them will not go to university nor do they want to. And a score that ultimately, even though the entire curriculum is focused around getting an ATAR, the schools will not be given, particularly in New South Wales, that ATAR result themselves. And I've been very clear that the inanity of expecting us to perform and jump through hoops when ultimately we're not allowed to know the answer is on par with a doctor operating on a patient and not being told whether the patient lives or dies when we're just the inanity of that just beggars belief. And so there are many things that I think are evidence of the pressure that is building in an environment where we're not necessarily, we're judged, but we're not necessarily given the evidence around those judgments. So I like that idea. They battle with giants every day. I think that's absolutely true. One of the things that we've done coming out of COVID, and I know some people are critical that schools haven't changed enough, but I also go, yeah, you need to know we're still in the middle of this. There are schools everywhere, including ours, that we just still don't have the staff yet to be able to run a full program. It's just, and it's particularly difficult for regional and rural schools and for schools where they're coming from disadvantaged communities. Trying to get the staff in place at COVID is not over in terms of its impact on the school environment. And I think that also adds to the extraordinary pressure and stress that is on teachers. I feel particularly cognizant, I guess, of senior teachers where many of them are older and they're expected to deliver for their year 12 you know, students at the same time as they themselves may have health issues or health concerns. So these are, these are complex ecosystems and it's not a matter of just getting everyone back to school and everything going back to normal. Having said that, I, I don't think I'd be the only school that's not that's sitting down and going, let's now run a, a group on redefining what it means to be a teacher and what that means looking forward. And in my part of the world, and I know this is different for different schools and different contexts, as far as we can tell, most teachers teach between 0.68 and 0.75 of their 1.0 full teaching load, full teaching equivalent. Most junior schools, it's um, primary schools, it's higher than that. So looking at, well, what are the ratios and the expectations of how much time people are spending in the classroom and then the context of those classrooms. So some of them might be, you know, if I was doing extension Latin, I might only have three or four kids in my class. But if I'm doing, you know, advanced English, I might have 30 kids or 32 kids in my class, depending on, you know, your, your setup. So that, that that ratio is not an equal ratio, even though you look at the numbers. But if we were just to look at that, I go, what would it mean if we were to drop that to 0.6? What would it mean? How much would that cost us? And in our context, because we've looked at this, this means that for every teacher, we would be taking them, for every eight teachers, I need another teacher. So just doing the maths around how much will this cost? What does this mean? What are the impacts of this? And then what am I going to get for my extra periods because partly you want to create space so teachers can breathe right there's a whole point about it it's not that they're I mean I actually I'm not their mum I don't don't care what they do with their extra time but I also want to know that I'm getting some productivity benefit from this and so what do I absolutely absolutely and 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 Brian if you look at some of the earlier experiments in this sort of thing in independent schooling uh, and I'm thinking of a couple of schools in particular in, in Victoria where they 
took away co-curricular and gave it to people as professional learning time. And almost all of those schools have, have, have reversed on that because they weren't able to get a productive benefit out of that time. It's a little bit like performance pay. Performance yep. pay and teaching works for the first two years yep. on the whole. And yep. then in the third year, it stops working because the people who get it start treating it as an entitlement. It's the norm. And, then, and, and it becomes the norm. And then when you don't give them a bonus, it's actually counterproductive and entitlement plus, you know, entitlement plus entitlement plus the resentment of others who don't get it doesn't work as well too. So, but then we keep revisiting this idea of, well, if we take them off co-curriculum and give them professional learning, it'll work. Well, that doesn't work. If we take them, we give them performance pay, that'll work. Well, that doesn't work either, but we, we don't have the ideas to and do when it. When you and say it, do, it doesn't work, it's like well, you have to define what what this what, what the outcome yes. is that we're wanting, right? Yes. So yes. I look at this and I, I go, I don't want to take people off co-curricular because that's actually how you get to know these kids and it's how you get them mixing between the year groups and, and that's where the relationships develop and the community starts to get stronger. But I also go, when they are in front of the class, I don't want them to be so exhausted that they're not, they're just giving token time to students because they have so many students and so many assessments and so many reports. And, and so if we take this down, I go, what would I want back? Well, I go, let's pretend it's four periods, right? Depends obviously on every school as to how long the periods are. But if you go, say, from 0.68 down to 0.62 or something like that, I go, half of those I want back for PD and not like, oh, you go and attend a course, but show me evidence where you're analysing your students' work and coming up with evidence-based or evidence-informed decision-making as a result. Show me where you've got the iterative process in place that allows me to see as an outsider that you have genuinely looked at these kids and what they're doing and you have a game plan in place for how you're going to change the direction or the outcome for that child. And that, to me, is a phenomenally good use of time. I actually do, we talked before about teaching rounds, I really love the concept of teaching rounds so long as they are done in such a way that is constructive and not just flattery, you know, or a waste of time. Like, but but if you look at that idea about the group supervision that I was talking about, well, what worked in your class? What isn't working in your class? Could you meet with your peers and talk around, you know, you do a case study, you know, once every two weeks and you take turns with this, going, what could you do here? How did that work? And, and so you're very deliberately guiding them through a supervision-like process that allows them to improve their practice, not dissimilar to that that's in place for social workers and psychologists where the stakes are equally as high. Mm. So I think there are things that we can do, but it's not so that you give them more students or more reports or more admin. It's how do you use that time to reflect back on your practice and generally have evidence of reflecting on your practice. So I think this perhaps comes into the realm of where we were a little bit earlier in the conversation, which is about an understanding of the solutions is is way more likely to come from people at the chalk face rather than have a systemic solution imposed on them in but this respect. They, but if they want that, they have to engage in the complexity. So if you come to me and you go, I want more time, I want an admin system, I'm like, well, what planet are you on? Right, like because that's the simplicity on this side of complexity. It's not the simplicity on the other side of complexity. 
The challenges are most schools don't have this kind of money. So what does this look like? How can you do this? How can you engage in the complexity to come up with the solutions rather than coming up with a flippant, well, if I just need more time, you know? There are some things that are incredibly valid. I mean, one of the, the things that we do in our school is we're trying to deinstitutionalize it, right? So we don't do bills. We haven't done bills for years. We don't want it to be like a prison. So I look at teachers and I go that they are dictated to by the bell that they're adults who don't have a chance to go to the bank or to, you know, be there when the washing machine arrives because they're, they're timetabled so tightly. It makes sense that there is more flexibility around their time if we can pull it off. But I can't say to them, come in the campus, dock on, dock out, because if you're not teaching, you don't have to be here. Because I go, what do I do when the first fire, fire alarm goes? Like who's looking after these kids when it all goes wrong? What am I going to do when a teacher doesn't turn up and I don't have any spare teachers around to be able to take that class? So you have to engage in the complexity to come up with the answers, not just come up with flippant, we should all just have time off, flexible time. And, you know, it just, that's not a reality of how this workplace works. No, and I think I think the solutions are going to be different from school to school as, as it is. And I think I think back to the first paper I think I wrote in a public forum, which was all around autonomous schooling. And, you know, we've, we've wrestled with that across our profession as well too, as mm. we've seen folk, you know, um, try and get used to the reality that other people around the world have found, which is if you create room and space for schools and their leaders to come up with the solutions that they need, they're much more likely to mm. create that positive impact in the life of, of students that they would want to have and be a much more robust community of inquiry and practice. For some who were clearly institutionalised by the system, that was just too much. And when offered autonomy, they then turned around and said no. And then others increasingly have found that that's the sort of thing that they want. But if we don't respect people along the way and we don't respect their expertise and we don't re respect their groundedness mm. um, in the profession itself, then... I don't think we're going to end up with much different. And, and the thing is, I mean, I'm not teaching full-time in the classroom. I know where we need to be as a from a school's perspective, but I'm not there on the ground. My job is to, a little like in the ice skating, you know, the curling, my job is to smooth the ice, you know, so that they have the freedom to do what they need to do. Now, I expect them to do what they need to do and I'll hold them to account for that, but my job is to remove the obstacles so that they can get on with the job of doing what they need to do. One of the interesting things too is we're not a very union-based school where we are. But I've spoken to our union rep and said, would you be involved in this? Because I, and they've been fantastic. And so kind of redefining the role of the union as coming up with and being a part of, and now they've always been part of the solutions, but, but actually bringing them along so that that's not the issue. Because whatever we do here, we're never going to be able to do it for all teachers all at the same time. So there is by its very definition, as you say, we can't afford this, right? We can't afford it now. And and down the track, we're going to have to work out how this happens. We're going to have to roll it out. And so what does that look like when you get perceived inequities while you're trialling and piloting different options? I, I think that's there's lots of reasons why it won't work, but that's no excuse not to say, yeah, let's make it work. I reckon that's a great point at which we might finish, Brian. I think, you know, if we talk about changing the game, it starts, I think, with who you are. It starts with a deep reflection on who you are and on your own growth and your willingness to take a big step forward and up and then to wrestle with complexity throughout your career as you serve those 
in your community as you try and build today's learning for tomorrow's world, whatever that means, in a particular given context, as you try and help create better outcomes for more learners, as you try and help prepare people to thrive by individually and collectively showing them what it means to learn, to live, to lead and to work. I think you do a cracking job of that. I'm so pleased (laughs) to have had the opportunity to share some time with you and to learn more about you and more about the way that you are changing the game in your little corner of the world and the influence you're having on a much broader scale because of your willingness to, to be a voice and to advocate for people in the profession. So thank you. Thank you. Can I just leave you with one little thing? I guess for the teachers who are listening, I get that it's been a really tough time and the last couple of years have been really difficult for everyone and for some more than, than others, and I appreciate that. I just would ask you to hold on to the hope. There, It is such a magnificent profession. It is the way through. It is the answer to so many of our challenges in life. and. Teaching is not for everyone. And and if you're at that point where you go, you know what, I actually, I'm done, that's not failure. That's you recognising that you're recalibrating and you're coming at it from a a different thing and you go with our blessing and our enormous gratitude. If you're going to stay in the profession, then understand that we have enormous power around what this profession looks like and how we can present our solutions to the world and we can present this next generation in in a a great light that to speak well of each other and to speak well of the profession is something that I would encourage all of us to be doing as we move forward. Bravo, Bryony, bravo. Since 2020, we've been shining a light on brave pioneers, the game changers who know the way, go the way and show the way forward as we build today's learning for tomorrow's world. The Game Changers podcast is produced by the dunk man himself, Lachlan Duncan, is available on Apple Podcasts. It's available on SoundCloud. It's available on Spotify. It's available on Google Play. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, let's go.